Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas-Anderson, and this is Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We're talking about Psalms 49 to 51, 61 to 66, 69 to 72, 77 to 78, and 85 to 86. I hope you are enjoying the Psalms and that you will take some time to read them. There are some, of course, that are being skipped, and they're beautiful also. So as I go through, I, I find that I've marked some that are not included in our reading, and that's certainly fine. And I hope that some of you get a chance to go off the path a little bit and read some of these other beautiful hymns of, of praise and and of requests to God. But these selections are beautiful, and I am enjoying them myself. I think as I want to start today, I want to talk about a couple different things. First, as I mentioned, you know, our current hymns are really the psalms of our day, and these were songs that were sung at the time. David is seen to be the author of many, but not all of the of the psalms, and they are ways of worshiping God. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with some of the hymns that we have that are directly quoting from the book of Psalms. For instance, the Lord is my shepherd. We have a hymn in our book by that name that takes the message from the words of the 23rd Psalm. We have the Lord my pasture will prepare. It's also in our hymn book, which also comes from a psalm. In fact, I looked at the back of the hymn book where it tells us you can look by scripture to see which hymns have messages that are drawn from which scriptures. And you can do that by looking at the scriptures. So I looked at the book of Psalms in the Old Testament list, and it would seem to me, I didn't count every single category, but it seemed pretty obvious that there were more hymns that are drawn from content from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament than any other scripture book, which makes sense. These are Psalms. They're hymns of praise or devotion or desire to draw near to God. So we have many hymns in our hymn book that will reference that. And you know how you can see that if you if you look at the hymn at the bottom of the page, it shows who is the author of the text, who composed the music, and then on the right side at the bottom of the hymn are scriptures that relate to these messages and, and from which these messages were drawn. So you'll notice that Psalms appears in, I mean, it's like 70 hymns or something close to that, that are drawn from the words of the Psalms in the Old Testament. I thought that was interesting. I also liked this great statement by Billy Graham who said, I used to read five psalms every day. That teaches me how to get along with God. Then I read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and that teaches me how to get along with my fellow man. Let's say that again. I used to read five psalms every day. That teaches me how to get along with God. Then I read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and that teaches me how to get along with my fellow men. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the book of Proverbs that have a lot of wisdom contained there. But I thought that was a nice connection here, that the Psalms really do help us to examine and improve our relationship with our Heavenly Father. There's so much beautiful entreaty and praise in these in these Psalms. One that I liked from this section that I'm just highlighting here in the title is, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. And that's verse 7 from the 86th Psalm, as referenced in the in the title for this week's podcast. So as I went through the Psalms and as I read through them, I, I was looking for themes. And it seems like they kind of work into these categories one major theme for the Psalms is to reach out to God in times of trouble for consolation and deliverance. There's a lot of entreaty to the Lord in in painful times, in times of suffering, in times of injustice, in difficulty, in our in our even in our sins or wickedness, that we reach out to God for consolation, for understanding, and then deliverance. And then specifically, there are many psalms that are about praying for justice and deliverance, this ultimate deliverance. So not just consolation and and kind of the, the mourning for unjust things, but also specifically asking God to deliver and to bring justice and right to the earth. Of course, there are many psalms, and, and these themes are mixed. Of course, one psalm might contain several of these themes. Another 
predominant theme is to praise God and to celebrate His greatness and glory. A lot of beautiful words that are used to praise God and exalt Him in in these words. Another is to testify of Jesus Christ. There are some messianic prophecies that are woven in here, sometimes just a little moment here or there. For instance, in our reading this week, Psalm 69, verse 21, it mentions that Christ would be given gall to drink. There's a little prophetic moment there that the psalmist was given that understanding that this would be something that Christ would experience. Then we even have in this week's sections, or in this week's psalms, in the 85th psalm, verse 11, truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now, that's a restoration prophecy. So there are some little prophetic moments here, mostly about the Savior, but this one is about the restoration of the gospel. Truth shall spring forth out of the earth. That's the Book of Mormon. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Christ and the Father come from heaven to restore the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. So that's kind of a sweet little restoration prophecy that we read this week in in the 85th Psalm. Then there are a lot of Psalms that remind us that Christ is and will be victorious and praise him for his victory over death and sin and over evil, over injustice, all of those things that, that Christ has already won the victory for, but will be acknowledged and finished after the millennium. The Psalms also have a repetitive theme of drawing near to the Father and the Son. So the psalmist is seeking closeness with deity. The 69th Psalm in our readings this week, verse 18, draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. So this drawing close to God through this form of worship, these songs of praise and desire. So I, I thought I thought that was beautiful to see these themes that are woven throughout these different writings. And they are in our hymn books. All those themes are in our hymn books. To seek the Lord in times of trouble and for consolation and deliverance, to pray for justice and deliverance, to praise God and celebrate his greatness and glory, to testify of Christ, to remind us that Christ will be victorious. Of course, we have hymns about the restoration as well. And then we have this yearning that comes in our hymns to draw close to both the Father and the Son in our worship, that we can be theirs, that we can become worthy of their presence in their kingdom. So I think I think it's nice to see those again and again expressed in beautiful language. Now, one other purpose for the Psalms that is going to be kind of the focus of my remarks today is the idea of catharsis. Now, some of you will have heard that word. It's not commonly used, perhaps. It's originally a Greek word that we've used, borrowed in English, to mean purging. One definition of catharsis could be the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. I'm going to go over that again. The process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. So in other words, when a person is feeling very strong emotions and they are being repressed, meaning we don't just, I hope that we don't just go and dump our feelings on everybody around us because that can be incredibly destructive and harmful. So if we're we're hurt or upset or angry, I hope we don't go yell at people, not at our kids, not at our spouse, certainly not at our neighbors or anybody else. So there is a measure of restraint that is appropriate when it comes to our deep feelings. It's not helpful. The expression of anger particularly is incredibly destructive in marriage and families. And anything akin to that expression of anger, some people say, well, I don't get angry, but they're very critical. So that's a different way of attacking their spouses or their children. And that's very destructive as well. So consider that. Consider if perhaps we express our our emotions too readily to the people around us when they're negative emotions. Now, if we're happy and we're sharing that, that's all fine. But there are certainly times in life where we're going to be upset or afraid or alone or stressed out by whatever. And in those times, it's not good to just, you know, dump all those emotions on the people around us in negative ways because that damages relationships. But holding it all inside is not desirable either. 
Because these negative emotions are akin to acid or poison. Either metaphor works pretty well. They're either you know toxic to our system or corrosive. So they don't lead to good health or emotionally or physically or relationally. So what are we going to do with these negative emotions? And although there's, you know, there's a lot to say about that subject, I'm going to make one point about that today. And that is to work toward catharsis. These psalmists were often achieving catharsis or that release of strong or repressed emotions through their songs of worship and praise and seeking consolation. So there are complaints here in the Psalms. And that's okay. This was an an effective strategy for dealing with that. They didn't presumably, and hopefully not, you know, go and yell at their spouses or their children. Instead, they took their trouble and they expressed it in these hymns or songs of praise or, you know, their yearnings toward God through these hymns. And we can do the same thing. This is incredibly healthy. You know, we don't talk about this stuff nearly enough, brothers and sisters. We tend to be a pretty emotionally repressive people. And without going into a lot of detail right now about this, I do want to say that repressed negative emotions are highly associated with anxiety and depression. And it really doesn't take any big leap to understand that. When life is hard and we don't know how to process those emotions, we tend to restrain them or repress them, and we don't know what to do with them. We think we just need to carry on or keep on carrying on. And you see those stickers all over the place, right, that say keep calm and carry on, which, okay, there's a time for that, but there's also a time for release. Because if we don't ever release those negative emotions, they get built up and it becomes a sort of volcano that grows in us of, like I said, toxicity or or corrosion. And it does not serve us well. It ends up coming back and kicking us right in the rear. And anxiety and depression are some of the ways that that can happen. There are others, but those are those are two that are almost ubiquitous these days. And of course, everybody understands that there are things that can create anxiety or make us feel depressed that are situational. But we have now tended to think that they're all just, you know, generated by genetics. And we feel so often like we're victimized by our genes. Oh, it runs in my family. And we can go through the generations and see that like, oh, yeah, this person was depressed and everybody in my family is depressed or whatever. But we don't realize that repressing our feelings also runs in our families because those are patterns that we've learned from our youth. Our parents, even with the best of intentions, maybe, said, you know, oh, being angry is is not a good thing. You can't be angry at your brothers and sisters or don't you be angry at your mom and dad or or whatever. And that without intending it to be became a really repressing message that it's not okay to say that you're upset at something. And again, that's not the same as yelling at somebody or telling them off because those things are condemned by God. We're not supposed to go and hurt people with our words or actions because we're upset. Nevertheless, at some point, it is incredibly healthy to acknowledge those feelings and release them in a way that does not hurt others, but doesn't stay inside to toxify our system. So I'm trying to say this in different ways so that the message can get through. For decades, it has been known in you know, the counseling circles that depression was often the result of anger turned inward. And it's not just anger, but anger or grief or pain of any kind, you know, turned inward was highly associated with depression. Now, as you may know, anxiety is the number one mental health concern in the United States. Number one. And depression is number two. We know we have these problems within the church. In fact, our culture, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but our culture in, in our Latter-day Saint culture, actually sort of promotes repression <laughs> inadvertently. I don't know that it's intentional. I'm just saying that we've developed some ways of thinking that are not particularly healthy when it comes to dealing with our emotions. For instance, how often do we kind of have that, that idea that we just need to pick up our hand card and move on? And again, there are times when you got to get that hand card across the river. There could be emergencies where this is not the time to quit, you know, keep going. 
But at some point, it is incredibly healthy to put the hand cart down and then detoxify those strong negative emotions that happen in times of distress or trouble. And that's the part I want to talk about, that cathartic release. It's a strange word, like I said, C-A-T-H-A-R-S-I-S, catharsis, that release of powerful emotions that tend to be suppressed or ignored. And look at the messages. As I said, it's pick up your hand card and move on. It can also be, you know, be of good cheer, you know, have a good attitude, be grateful. Are those things true? Yeah, they're true. Like, should we be of good cheer? Yes, we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know that he will reign victoriously forever. That is great news, and we can be of good cheer because of it, but that doesn't mean we don't hurt sometimes or that we should ignore that hurt, or even go so far as to deny it. Some people even go that far and say, no, we don't have any problems. Everything's fine. Well, you know, that's not really true. In fact, when our kids were growing up, my husband wisely counseled them to avoid at least two types of people when they were looking for a marriage partner. And one of them was a person who has no problems. (laughs) It's like, don't, don't marry somebody who has no problems and never had a problem, because basically they're in denial. They're repressing all those feelings, and that's going to be trouble, because at some point, that pressure cooker is going to blow. And on the other side, he said, and avoid marrying somebody where a problem becomes a catastrophe. We even use that word in counseling that some people catastrophize. So any any little problem or you know, moderate problem becomes an enormous problem, and they stop functioning, and they fall apart because they have a problem. So, you know, either extreme becomes problematic, catastrophizing problems or not having any problems because that's a sign of extreme repression and even denial of the reality of life's difficulties. So back to this idea, what we want to do is kind of push back against these cultural teachings that may have contributed to our repressing negative emotion and not dealing with it in an effective way. I'm going to tell you how we can deal with this in just a little moment here, but I want to just give another example. (laughs) Um, This was when I was a young mother, and I think we were living in Chicago. So when we got to Chicago, we had four children and had two more in the three and a half years that we were living there. And in the summers, because we were pretty far away and some of you as old as I am remember that long distance was expensive and we didn't have email, cell phones, video chats, all that kind of stuff that now makes it easier to visit even at a distance. So if we wanted our kids to have time with their grandparents, we needed them to go to Utah where all four grandparents were. So we would set things up so that I could take the kids for a couple of weeks in the summer to visit with their grandparents, spend time there. And then Chris would usually join us at the end of the trip for just a few days so he didn't have to burn through all his vacation days. And then we would return home. So here we were on a visit to Utah. And I was actually at this point staying with my mother-in-law and father-in-law in in their home so that we could have some of that close time with them. And I remember, I think I was standing in the kitchen with my mother-in-law. And I had just come in from the backyard where the kids were playing. And I don't remember exactly what offense was occurring right then, but I was irritated at my children. And I came in frustrated and the children weren't around, so they didn't hear this. But I turned to my mother-in-law and I said, I could kill those kids. Now, I obviously, and just verifying right here that I did not mean that in any kind of literal sense, I was letting off steam. Just something, it was something close to that, that, you know, I could kill those kids or I want to kill those kids. And I was just saying it to her in order to get some catharsis, to kind of vent those feelings and release that that negative emotion, not in front of my children. Didn't want to hurt their feelings or do damage to them, but I needed some relief. So I vented at my mother-in-law and my mother-in-law, a good you know, Idaho Mormon family that she grew up in, and Scandinavian to boot, said in kind of a, you know, tender voice, she said, oh, oh, honey, don't say that. Now, see, that's repression. And it was well-intended, because we have had this kind of message repeated many times through the generations that don't say anything negative, don't say anything bad, don't say anything that, that sounds, you know, like that. And actually, 
even though I was a pretty mild personality back in the day, I was I had enough wherewithal at that time that I looked at her and I said, I need to say it so that I don't feel tempted to do it. <laughs> and I don't know what she thought of that, but you know, she's she didn't say anything further when it came to that. And she was a very strong personality herself. So I think she heard what I was saying and understood it. At least that's what I like to think. I think that she heard that and realized, yeah, I'm venting here. So that I don't get too mad at the kids directly because I don't want to parent when I'm angry. But I'm frustrated. And if I can come in here and complain to another mother about how frustrating children can be and feel some relief from, from that venting, then I'm in a better position to go and deal with things in a reasonable and rational manner. So while we're at it, we're going to talk about an internal seesaw that everybody has. On one side of the seesaw, try to picture our emotions. And on the other side, picture our reason. And it works just like a seesaw. Emotion on one side, reason on the other. And when emotion is elevated, that would mean reason is suppressed. Right? The emotion side of the seesaw goes up, builds up because we're repressing emotion. And our reason is suppressed. Now, we know this about big crises, like if you get hit by a truck, you don't go buy property that day. You don't hopefully make serious decisions when you're in the grip of strong emotion, because they may be really bad decisions, because our reason is sort of suppressed or compromised by those intense emotions. In fact, I don't know if you guys have had surgery lately, but if you go to the hospital for a procedure, and they didn't used to do this. Years ago, this wasn't in the paperwork. And now it's in the paperwork that after a surgery or whatever, they say, please don't make any serious decisions in the next 72 hours. So they're acknowledging that that seesaw exists and that the disruption that happens from surgery that is, you know, a physical change and it's sort of, you know, emotionally stressful that, you know, just remember that you're probably not going to be in the most reasonable frame of mind. So don't commit yourself to big financial decisions or life decisions until you've had a chance to kind of re reset that seesaw and get back into a place where you can think better and be more consistently rational in, in your process. Too often we don't recognize that it may not be in a moment of surgery or a car accident or a bad breakup that our emotions are way off balance on the seesaw, suppressing our reason. It may be and honestly, most, most often is just the slow accumulation of stressors that we don't deal with. We don't process them well emotionally. So it could be just, you know, I'm having stress at work or I'm having stress at school or I'm having stress in the family or a friend was mean to me or whatever it is. And because we're nice people and we don't want to be high maintenance and we have some of these messages in our culture we try to just keep picking up our handcart and moving on, and we don't even always acknowledge how stressed we are or how hurt we are. And we, we just try to keep going forward with a good attitude and, and you know being of good cheer, but those emotions accumulate and push up that side of the seesaw and suppress reason. This is, this is serious business because the Lord really wants us to think, and he invites us to do this, in no uncertain terms, section 9 of the DNC, where he says, study it out in your mind. Section 50, where he talks about, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. There are lots of places where the Lord is telling us, think, think about this. But how well are we going to think if we're never dealing with, with some kind of detoxification process for all this built-up emotion, where we just try to you know, move forward? And this is certainly an example of where our strengths can become our weaknesses, because it's a strength to continue. We don't want to be high-maintenance, fragile types where any setback throws us into our, our bedrooms and we can't function for a while because we, you know, we're just too overcome. We're not looking for that kind of fragility. That's not going to serve anybody. So it is a strength to be able to continue to function under duress. And we do want ourselves and our children to become anti-fragile. We've talked about this in the past, how important it is for us to be anti-fragile where we don't cave from stressors, we actually maximize who we are by dealing with the stress. 
We become the optimal version of ourselves because God can consecrate our affliction for our good. And we go to him, learn what needs to be learned, and become more powerful, not less, when we have trouble. That's the idea. That is the idea. To be anti-fragile is the goal. Nevertheless, powering through can become a weakness. When on the other hand, we just don't ever go back and say like, that was a difficult emotional time for me and I need to make sure I've kind of detoxified all of that hurt or anger or pain or loneliness or whatever it was. So these psalmists knew how to get catharsis. And one of the great ways to get catharsis is writing. I will mention there are actually three tools that I talk about typically about how to achieve catharsis. The first that I'm going to spend a little time on as well is a trusted listener. But from the perspective of becoming a good trusted listener for those around us, particularly our children, rather than necessarily being confident that we're going to have a trusted listener available to us. And the reason for that is that people don't know how to listen very well in a way that brings catharsis. The problem is that many people who love us or well-intentioned friends or family that they want to help, they tend to go too quickly to advice, which is rational. So they're trying to access the rational side of our seesaw, our teeter-totter, and our emotions are so high, we're not ready to think. And if we were, we probably would know the answers to our own problems anyway. (laughs) At least many times that's the case. And if we need advice, we ask. But too often, somebody who loves us and we go to kind of talk to jumps in so quickly with advice that we don't get a chance to detoxify all those emotions that have built up. We even use the gospel of Jesus Christ to shut down this venting process or this cathartic process. I know it's benevolently intended, but don't do it. Like where somebody comes in and says, you know, I hate my life or I hate my spouse or I hate my kids, whatever. And so often our response is to try to fix things. And that is not going to allow for the cathartic process. We're trying to get them to think rationally instead of just letting them vent. So we say stuff like, well, have you prayed about that? Are you reading your scriptures? Or do you have enough faith? Are you going to the temple? None of those things are a mystery. They probably already know it and have tried. And now we're just making them feel worse because we're telling them things to do that they already know. So it's not only not very useful, but it's insulting. It's not helpful. Let's stop doing that. Even when our kids come to us and say, I hate my brother. So often we're inclined to jump in and and give a solution or put a Band-Aid on it. Like, oh, honey, don't say that. Hate's not a nice word. You know, you need to love each other. Or if they say, I hate school. Oh, well, do you need help with homework? Do I need to talk to the teacher? What's going on? We need to get you a tutor. And we jump into these problem-solving modes. And, you know, men are particularly notorious at this because, you know, bless your hearts, we put you in a lot of problem-solving roles. We actually want you to solve problems a lot of the time. I mean, we want you to fix the car when it's broken or get it fixed. We want you to take care of the sprinklers or the leak in the sink. You know, so there are many things that we come to you men for that are problems to be solved. And, you know, if your wife tells you, you know, the car broke down or won't start today, she probably doesn't want you to say, well, how do you feel about that, dear? She probably wants you to say, okay, I'll get it looked at or I'll take care of it or whatever needs to happen. So we put you in these problem-solving roles, and then when it comes to intense emotion, we want you to stop solving problems and just listen and validate. So that can be a hard transition, but please try. This is incredibly helpful for marriages, incredibly helpful for parents, because if our kid comes up and says, I hate school, and we just jump into the lecture about how school is your future, they've heard it before. And it makes their feelings go right back inside and they become repressed feelings. And have you noticed that the levels of anxiety and depression amongst our youth have skyrocketed? And we now have suicides at crazy levels because people don't get a chance to be heard and to detox. I realize there are some other variables, but this is a significant one. And let's not underplay or under-realize or value the significance of listening to people in a truly facilitating way that allows people to get catharsis. Now, catharsis, like I said, is that release. It's like kind of a purge, emotional purge or emotional throwing up. And you know how throwing up is. You know, it's gross and disgusting, but you usually feel better when you're done. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that in our own lives, and we need to facilitate that in the people around us, our spouses and our children. So if your husband comes home from work and says, I hate my job, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. 
I mean, that can be a pretty fearful announcement. And, you know, wives sometimes jump in and go, oh, honey, we got all these bills or we have all the, do you know, this is a terrible time to try to find a new job. They know those things. And we, we just left them sitting there holding all those emotions without any relief. Instead of which we could say, what happened? That's actually a great rejoinder for almost anybody's first expression of pain or anger or grief or stress. You know, if a kid comes and says, I hate my brother, that's that's a good answer too. What happened? Or I hate school. What happened? I mean, we want to just let them talk. We want to let them throw up emotionally right there with us. And we want to be their trusted listener. Now, we may not have a good trusted listener ourselves because maybe people try to give us advice too quickly. Sometimes we have somebody we can talk to. Women are more likely to have a friend like that than men are because men don't talk about their feelings as much. And it's good to practice men because it is good to get this cathartic release. But if you don't have somebody to talk to or all the people you talk to tend to give advice right away, and that's not helpful because it sort of causes us to put all those feelings back inside and repress then what we want to do is write. This is cathartic writing. It is not a journal. When we're done, we're going to rip, shred, burn, or delete. Rip, shred, burn, or delete. Leave no trace. This is not for posterity. This is a process workbook kind of writing. It can be done by hand on paper or into a device. Whatever is most comfortable, you can try both. And let it rip. It needs to be unedited, unfiltered. Some people start to write and they say, oh, I can't put that down. That's too mean. Well, the meaner it is, the more important it is to get it out of our systems rather than repressing it. We need to be honest about how ugly those feelings are and then find a way through them, but not ignore them, not deny them, not repress them. Those things are problematic and they continue to increase in the level of problems that they produce. It can be physically harmful. It can lead to erratic behavior. Anyway, there are lots of different impacts that this can have on us that are very, very hurtful and destructive to us and the people around us. So you're doing everybody a great service if you take ownership for detoxing your feelings. And writing, even if you do have a great listener, I really would encourage you to write and I hope you'll think about that when you read the Psalms. We have one more week where we're going to be reading Psalms before we move on. And notice how much catharsis is evident in the Psalms. Now, we have other Psalms that are not contained in the Old Testament, right? Maybe you're familiar with the Psalm of Nephi. This is the section from 2 Nephi 4 that we refer to as the Psalm of Nephi. I think it starts about verse 16. Let me check this out. It's a beautiful section, and I know you've heard it. Okay, turning my pages, and here we are. Here it is, 16, or 17, sorry, verse 17, 2 Nephi 4. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth. That's kind of the preface to the psalm. And then it kind of begins with these words, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. That's catharsis. He's pouring out his pain. Wretched man that I am, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. Going on, verse 18, I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, this is verse 19, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, and you can almost see it, his seesaw has been, you know, really tipped with the high emotion. But then as he expresses this emotion and he detoxifies this negative stuff, and, and he puts it into words, you can see the seesaw tipping up a little bit toward reason where he says, nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. So there is some reason, there's some rationality that comes after he is able to dump some of that emotion, the reason swings up on the seesaw. That's beautiful. We can see that in ourselves. We can see it in our children. Sometimes if they come in and say, like, I hate my brother, you know, and you're like, okay, well, what happened? And then they hopefully are given permission to release all this toxic stuff. Well, he took my bike and he ruined this and he brought it, whatever, whatever. And now I need my bike to play with my friends and he won't let me borrow his bike, even though he wrecked, you know, whatever it is, they're going to, they're going to, that flood of complaint is so incredibly healthy. 
Now, we don't have to agree with it. And that's what stops people from being good listeners sometimes is you're afraid to agree with negative emotion. But that needs not to be our fear. We need to accept it, which is not the same as endorsement. And by the way, our kids know that we don't endorse them hating their brothers or sisters. I'm pretty sure we've communicated that clearly before. This is not the time to hit them over the head with it. Instead, we want them to detox. So we listen and validate, which is basically just saying, I recognize that you got cut and you're bleeding. You know, your brother hurt you by taking your bike and ruining it or whatever. And now he's not even, you know, trying to make it up by giving you his bike to ride for now. That's hurtful. And I'm going to just acknowledge them and say, wow, you know, I don't have to say it's okay to hate your brother. And they don't expect it because they know how we feel. But instead I can say, Wow, sometimes brothers are pretty tough, aren't they? Or sometimes brothers are really unfair. Or sometimes brothers can be a pain in the neck. And all of that is true. And I'm validating their pain without saying it's okay to hate him. Again, they don't even expect us to say that. We've expressed our opinion on these subjects before. So I'm just validating that pain. And then if you know you let that kid get to that cathartic moment where they've complained enough, sometimes you even see this kind of release, this sigh, like... You know, some kind of cathartic moment where where they've let it all out and now their muscles can unwind. (laughs) It's so healthy, so incredibly healthy for them just to like drop that load to a caring and sympathetic person who can validate their pain. Not the same as endorsing any behavior that comes out of that pain. I'm not going to endorse going and hitting your brother or stealing his bike or whatever. And then after they get that moment's release and their muscles kind of relax and so on, because they've been heard and they've been validated. You can sometimes see that seesaw shift right in front of you. And their reason comes up and they say, well, can you just tell him to let me borrow his bike? Oh, yeah, okay. So they knew the answer to the problem, or they knew what they needed to do or what they needed help with. And we didn't insult them by telling them what to do, because they already knew they just needed to get the emotion out of the way. So their seesaw could swing back up toward reason. And then they could ask for the help they needed if necessary. It's a really wonderful system. This sounds ultra simple, but it's very powerful. And we don't do a good job of it, brothers and sisters. So Chris and I moved to Utah. We were just remembering this on Sunday that we moved to Utah. It's almost 24 years ago. In another month or so, we'll be be 24 years here. Actually, it was probably the end of August. So yeah, we're almost there. And that's a long time. But shortly after we moved here, and, and I think you know, my husband, Chris, is also a counselor. Now, somebody asked him very shortly after we moved to Utah, why do you think so many Latter-day Saints are on antidepressants? And Chris gave a great <laughs> kind of just shooting from the cuff answer. He said, because we don't drink. I think I think he nailed it, you know? We don't self-medicate with alcohol like so much of the rest of the world. So we have to go to the doctor to get, you know, something legit so that we don't have to violate the word of wisdom to feel some sort of relief. Now, here's the trouble is that antidepressants don't work. I hope not to offend anybody. It's not my intention to offend you, and I'm certainly not advising anybody to quit cold turkey if you're on antidepressants because those things should be done carefully and with a doctor's help. My husband and I read a book years ago called, okay, I'm going to forget the name of it. It'll come in a minute. But the other one that was out at the same time was called The Emperor's New Drugs. And both of these books, it was some kind of kind of book that, and both of these books talked about the fact that antidepressants don't really address the problem because it's not really neurochemical. It really doesn't have to do with serotonin levels. This has been a fallacy that has been pushed for a long time, that you just need more serotonin, you need those SSRIs, but there's no consistent, credible, replicable research to support the chemical imbalance theory. That's just the reality. Oh, it was called Anatomy of an Epidemic. That was the name of the book that we read, and the other one was The Emperor's New Drugs. They both had the same messages. Maybe you saw this in the news. I don't know how much time it's getting in the headlines, but in April, they released summaries of new research that have been published in science journals that are saying the same thing. And this time it's getting a little traction because even though it's been decades since it has been known that that serotonin hypothesis was not really accurate, this time they're saying again and more clearly that over time, in fact, one of the conclusions that I saw in in a summary of the research said, 
over time, using antidepressants is not associated with significantly better health-related quality of life compared to people with depression who do not take the drugs. I repeat that. Over time, these are longitudinal studies. They're not just for this month or, or for two months or whatever. They, they're over years. And they found that over time, using antidepressants is not associated with significantly better health-related quality of life compared to people with depression who do not take the drugs. So they're not finding efficacy. For many years, it has been kind of suspected, and I mean the studies that they do have shown that some antidepressants seem to be effective at a rate of about 39%, but placebos tend to be effective at a rate of about 36%. So depending on how the study is done, that may or may not exceed the margin of error of the study. So we're not even sure what's happening all the time, but there could be a placebo effect that happens at least early on. But over time, there end up being no differences in long-term outcomes in terms of improved mental, emotional, or physical health from taking antidepressants. So alcohol is not the answer. Antidepressants really aren't the answer. Detoxing is. We need to detox our negative emotions. Let's do what the psalmists did, brothers and sisters. Let's write out our feelings. You need some privacy and a little recovery time. These do not have to be marathon sessions. If you have five minutes or 10 minutes, you can, you can give this a try. Some studies suggest like 15 minutes three times a week, but maybe you've got that and maybe you don't. So adapt, but take some time and detox. And this can be, like I said, on paper or into a device, whatever feels most comfortable. Try both if you want. Go back and forth if you want. Whatever works for you is good. We can teach our children to do this too when they're old enough to do it. And then you don't read what they've written unless there's a safety issue and they know it. But most of the time, it's just detox it and run it through the shredder or delete it. It can be in the form of letters that we never send. Do not send these letters. I've had a couple of clients over the years who've told me that Abraham Lincoln wrote letters that he never sent when he was upset at his generals. And I'm sure there were lots of reasons why Abraham Lincoln was feeling the stress. And I was so grateful when I heard that because I thought how kind that the Lord gave him this understanding that he could express those feelings, that he could detoxify those feelings in a written letter addressed to the person that was being hurtful or obstructive and then not send it so that he didn't cause more trouble by confronting or blaming or starting a fight with somebody. And that is really a great benefit of this cathartic writing, is that it can lower the intensity of our emotions so that we then approach our relationship issues with more reason rather than leading with our intense emotions, which tends to backfire and can be very threatening for the people around us. So let's do what the psalmists did. Let's write out our feelings of desolation or pain, our need for comfort, our need for deliverance, our need for justice, our need for, for having help from God, our desire to draw near to him, our gratitude for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who ultimately will dry all our tears and heal all our wounds. This is, this is such a, an, an important skill to develop, such an important tool to use Become a better listener. You should be the best trusted listener for your children. And it would be nice if we could do that for our spouses too. Sometimes that's hard. We can be threatened by what they say, but if we can also learn to not be threatened by that. That's different, a different skill. So anyway, you, you decide whether or not you can, can do that with your spouse. But at some point, of course, it's important to listen to what they feel. But it's definitely something we can do with our children and with our friends. And let me tell you, if you become a good listener, everybody talks to you because there are not enough good listeners in the world. And even before I was a counselor, before I ever went back to graduate school, when I was a mother at home, I, I really started to make a point of being a good listener with my kids and accepting their feelings. It was perhaps one of the most valuable things I ever did as a parent, was to become their trusted listener. Then they tell you everything. And you may have to listen to some of the boring stories that they tell when they're in middle school. I don't know why it is, but middle school is really boring. But after that, when they're 15 and 16 and you want to know every thought in their head and in the heads of their friends, 
This is invaluable because they're used to coming to us and telling us how they feel. And we don't freak out and we don't try to tell them what to do. We don't try to just put a Band-Aid on it or pull out the fire extinguisher and put out the fire. We listen and validate their feelings. And then when catharsis has been achieved, when they have that moment of release where they feel like, oh, you know, I feel better because I purged all of that stuff. I was able to, to throw it up. Then that seesaw swings up and it's a wonderful time to counsel with them. And if they don't know the answers themselves, that's a great time to teach or to help reaffirm principles that can benefit them and help them to change their perspective or, or hopefully to move forward in ways that are, are good and acceptable to God and, and beneficial to them forever. But first, we need to help them detox the feelings. And as I became a better listener, it was amazing at what people would tell me. <laughs> and like I said, I wasn't a counselor. I was just being a friend. And that might even be a sales clerk at a store where I had a lot of purchases to make. I mean, if I was shopping for school clothes for eight children during a big sale, you know, sometimes I spent some time and I got all the good deals I could. And then it would take me a while to check out. And I would just go into listening mode with the checkout clerk. And then as we would walk away with our purchases, sometimes my little kids that were with me would say, do you know that lady? <laughs> or do you know that person? Well, no, I just met them today, as you saw, and they'd say, well, they told you all about their mother dying from cancer or their divorce or their sick kid or whatever. And I said, yeah, everybody needs to talk. Everybody needs to be heard. Everybody needs to be listened to. And I tried to help my children learn that too. And I'm really grateful. I think they're great listeners. But it's something to be aware of. I think it's something to, to keep refreshing in our minds. Detox. Let's focus on getting that catharsis. Let's let out these negative feelings and then let that seesaw swing back up toward reason so that reason is in the ascendant position. And then we can address the problems and see if there are additional things we need to do to make changes in our lives or gain some skills or develop some boundaries that can help us move forward without getting hurt in a repetitive way. But first, detox. Okay, I just have to add one more thing that's on a little bit of a different subject, but it's kind of tied into to what we've been talking about a little bit. And it's this group of hymns that I really love that I think do kind of help us to also feel this part of the Psalms, starting with hymn number 120. And in the wards that I've been in, we don't often sing these songs. And I think that's really sad because some of them are just incredible messages that help us feel validated in our pain. So hymn number 120 is Lean on My Ample Arm. And it's just two verses. And honestly, in times of trouble for myself, when I have been hurting, I do write. I do do cathartic writing from time to time, but I also sometimes will go to the piano and I don't play well at all, but I can pick out the hymns, you know, badly, but it works so that I can, I can hear the music along with the, and of course, these days you can play it on your phone if you want to, and you'll get the music and the words. So that's another alternative that's always great. But this, this hymn, look at the words, lean on my ample arm, O thou depressed. Look at that, we actually use the word depressed in a hymn, but we don't usually sing this hymn, I'm afraid. And I will bid the storm cease in thy breast. Whate'er thy lot may be on life's complaining sea, if thou wilt come to me, thou shalt have rest. Then this beautiful verse, lift up thy tearful eyes, sad heart, to me. And I love this line. I am the sacrifice offered for thee. In me thy pain shall cease. In me is thy release. In me thou shalt have peace eternally. Beautiful words. Hymn number 120. Check it out. And then it's the next nine hymns as well that I think are all on this topic of consolation. 121. This is kind of a leak hymn here. It's called, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a stranger. <laughs> and... And it's, you know, it's pretty sad. The first verses and then the last verse starts to give some consolation as he entreats the Lord to be with him and to guide guide us safely to the promised land. This next one, 122, though deepening trials throng your way, press on, press on, ye saints of God. Ere long the resurrection day will spread its life and truth abroad. 
Though outward ills await us here, the time at longest is not long, ere Jesus Christ will reappear, surrounded by a glorious throng. Another verses, there are seven verses to this one, written by Eliza R. Snow. Beautiful words. The next hymn, O May My Soul Commune With Thee. And then one of our favorites, I think, 124, Be Still My Soul. That's stunning. Stunning in both music, which comes from John Sibelius, but also the words that are so, so beautiful, written by Katharina von Schlegel. How Gentle God's Commands come next. That's a favorite for me. How long, O Lord, most holy and true, shall shadowed hope our joy delay? Our hearts confess, our souls believe thy truth, thy light, thy will, thy way. This is another one that I don't think we sing very often. Does the journey seem long? Hymn number 127, beautiful words. 128, when faith endures. And 129, one that I think we do sing every once in a while, where can I turn for peace? But go and look at the hymns and feel the inspiration and the catharsis that these words provide. Write your own hymn. It doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to be poetry. But write out those feelings in a cathartic writing moment. Rip, shred, burn, or delete. Sometimes people say, well, writing made me angrier. And I'm like, it's not the writing. The writing doesn't make you angrier. It's just revisiting those feelings that you've been repressing all this time. You know, basically, that means you've been drilling in the right spot and you hit a gusher. And that's a good thing because you can release that pressure and that will be healthier for everyone. By the way, back to that study that suggested 15 minutes three times a week. At the end of the experimental period of about eight weeks, the people who had been detoxing through writing three times a week for about 15 minutes showed lower blood pressure, better heart rates, all kinds of other physical markers that were better than the control group. I don't remember what they were, but there were a lot of them. And they reported higher life satisfaction, higher job satisfaction, higher relationship satisfaction. I mean, it was a clean sweep. Detoxing is important. We could reduce levels of anxiety and depression. I know there are other variables involved, but this one is important. And God says it. Cast thy burden on the Lord and bear a song away. I think that's in How Gentle God's Commands that we just (laughs) mentioned the title of. Read these hymns. Write your own hymns of catharsis. They don't have to be hymns, like I said, but get it out of the system and don't be afraid of those feelings. Give them to Christ. He has asked us to come to him with those burdens because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is important, brothers and sisters. It can help us become more anti-fragile, not so overwhelmed by our emotions. It's important for us to do this, to become a stronger people, a Zion people, to choose glory every day. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.